Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the history of humor writing in America. Mark Twain's name will come up. We'll discuss whether the Puritans were funny. We might be talking about contemporary comic novels, if such a thing even exists anymore. Joining me today is one of our regular co-hosts, critic, gal about town, the very memorable and always fashionable Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. And a special guest is the former host of the Brazilian Hour on WDIY in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. He is also a contributor to The New Yorker, The National Lampoon, Spy Magazine. He is an author of several nonfiction books and novels. One of his books is called The Big Jewish Book of Jewy Humor or something of that nature. <laughs> he is the great Ellis Weiner. And just a reminder, the Los Angeles Review of Books is in a membership drive. Become a member today. Check us out at lareviewofbooks.org. There's a great history of humor writing in America, and it seems to be in uh, abeyance right now, but it's been glorious in the past. And with us today is one of the foremost practitioners of magazine humor writing, the great Ellis Weiner, who has written for The New Yorker, The National Lampoon, Spy Magazine, and many, many other places. And Ellis, I'm curious, as a reader in the 1970s of The National Lampoon, which I worshipped at the time, how did you come to write for them? Well, first of all, thank you. It's great to be here. I was working for Strand Bookstore, and they made me manager of a little bookstore on First Avenue and 51st called the Beekman Place Bookshop. The I, big new place bookshop? Beekman Place. Beekman Place. <laughs> the big new place would have been fun, too. This is radio for the heart of here. <laughs> the big new place bookshop? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Did you say big new place? Was that near big new place? And I had read The Abortion by Richard Brodigan, and I thought, well, I can do that. So I wrote a parody of it, I had never read Lampoon, but I knew of it. So I typed, as we then did, up a copy and walked it over to the Lampoon offices, which were Madison and 59th. And I called and was put through to Michael O'Donohue, who said, we're not going to run this, but this is good. Come on in. And before we jump around too much, we should say oh, yeah. Michael O'Donoghue, one of the original writers of Saturday Night Live, right. appeared on screen as the character Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike yeah. and, and one of the fonts of a certain style of comedy that came to the fore in the 70s, an important figure in comedy history. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I, for all intents and purposes, owe my career to Mr. Mike. And they, he transferred me to Brian McConaughey, who is a very funny, unpredictable writer, but was something of an opaque editor. So... I would show up, you know, first of all, the fourth floor of the building where Lampoon offices were, were being reconstructed. So there were all these mazes of plywood walls everywhere. So I was already A, intimidated and B, disoriented. And I would sit down with Brian, who's like 6'2", in his yellow suit and his bow tie, and say, okay, what, what are you working on? And he would say, oh, you know, it's the thing with bullet trains and cocktails and the, you know, the thing <laughs> of Jeff Scott Fitzgerald and, uh, you know, the, the Chrysler building. And I would, of course, nod and say, and walk away and have no idea what he was talking about. And then when the issue would come out three months later, I would say, oh, oh, that had I but known. So I continued to write and pitch things to him that didn't get bought until uh, I went away for some brief hiatus from the bookstore. And I came back and called him and he said, well, we're doing a book of parodies. Can you do Ernest Hemingway? 
And I did what was, you know, the gutsiest thing of my whole career up until then, which was I said, yeah. So I did a Hemingway parody, which they bought and they put in this paperback called This Side of Parodies. And that's how I sort of got in the door. But the main break was I kept showing up. And I also met at Strand Bookstore a guy named Danny Abelson. And we had the same sense of humor. And he introduced me to Monty Python. So Danny Abelson and I had a common interest in what today we would call New Age Danny and I would read books by William Irwin Thompson, like The Edge of History, Philip Slater called The Pursuit of Loneliness. And they were they were radical critiques of American society, imbued with Eastern, some of Eastern philosophy and, and, and psychology. So we wrote this long generic parody, which ultimately was printed in the magazine called Don't Read This. And it was just this sort of insane analysis of American society. But then we had all this interest in art. So we did a parody of Art News magazine we we proposed and they agreed to do a parody of a Picasso, a, a book of intimate Picasso photographs as uh, David Douglas Duncan was doing at the time. So they, we, we all drove out to this farm in New Jersey with a model who looked sort of like Picasso. And the, playing his wife was an artist named uh, Mara McAfee who, who would do covers for the magazine. And we had the art director portray a, a retired matador. And we did all these fake, these setups with these photos. So we had those two pieces, and by then, they said, we're looking for staff, do you guys want to join? And we said, absolutely, and it was a blast, it was great. And it meant sitting in a living room, throwing a Frisbee around, and occasionally going into a conference room and having ideas, and then going away into our respective little offices and typing them up. You can't beat it. Dream job. Yeah, exactly. Until one thing led to another, and P.J. O'Rourke was made editor-in-chief, which we said to the publisher, we did not think that was a good idea, but he didn't care what we thought. Was Matty Simmons the publisher? He was the publisher, yeah. Okay. P.J. Had, had, had cultivated him in a, in a you know appalling-slash-impressive way. <laughs> and uh, shortly after P.J. became editor, Danny and I left. And was it, was it a difference of comedic sensibilities, or was it more a personality thing? It was both. PJ had talent, and 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 he he, I went on to also freelance after I had left. So, you know, on the one hand, I made this this great gesture of integrity. On the other hand, I came crawling back because I had to make a living. And he gave me the idea to do a parody of Joan Didion, which turned out to be one of my favorite pieces. But the, the way he ran editorial meetings was completely the opposite of the way we used to do it. Everyone would just sort of sit and wait to be told when to speak, and he would read what he wow. had written, and and would read his his some of his jokes, and we would go. Eh. I'm not saying that if he had not been made editor, there would still be a lampoon. I think it was on its way out because of a generational change. It seemed as if, to me, it was a fish gasping on the dock for a very long time. It was. Actually. And in those 1970s years, those mid-70s years when O'Donoghue was around there, it was a very, very vital nexus of American humor writing. And then it just seemed to veer slowly off the rails for, it, a ver- for a very long time. And what I want to ask is, to what do you attribute that? As I said, mainly a generational change. Also, the end of the war in Vietnam meant pretty much the end of the radical nature of the counterculture. Indeed, at one point, I was asked to review the Preppy Handbook. And it's the only time I've been given a task that I couldn't do in that field. I was so pissed off that this generation of kids wanted to emulate these people. I couldn't be funny about it. And I said, I can't do it. And I, and I they away. wanted to emulate the lampoon? No, they people. wanted to emulate preppies. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And Lisa Bernbach said, no, no, it was a joke. You know, and I've said, to you maybe, and to me, 
But I think it was a popular book. And I said in some piece of writing, maybe it was in Spy, this proves that everything we did was in vain. You know, we raised the whole generation on Mad Magazine and The Lampoon, and they turn out to want to be preppies. Go have children. Go have a career. But that raises an interesting question about parody as a critique. You know, some people will look at a situation, and I think this is kind of true of all three of us to a degree, that the way we want to comment on it is to make fun of it. We don't want to do a serious commentary about it. That's, the parody is the comment. Right. It's just interesting that you couldn't apply that to Lisa Birnbach, where you could apply it to so many things. You're right. And, and I asked myself that, and I said, look... I did a million parodies for Lampoon, and I knew only the good ones came from when I was writing about a piece of writing that I had contempt for. Jerry Sussman said, do something on Philip Roth. I love Philip Roth. So I did something, and it was okay, but it wasn't so good. You have to kind of hate it to do yeah. a really good parody of it. Yeah, so I said, if you hate this so much, why can't you do it? And the hate overwhelmed the artistic control. Right, right. This is the LARB Radio Hour. My name is Seth Greenland, and I am here with Ellis Weiner and Lori Weiner. I just want to tell a couple personal stories about Ellis before we continue on our talk about comedy, if that's okay, Seth. Let's, let's hear them. Okay, yeah, because I Ellis, and I, Ellis and I grew up together in Baltimore. Our parents were and are those remaining best friends. <laughs> Ellis is about five years older than I am. Uh, so he was kind of out of my orbit, but I was aware of him as a glamorous, this is so true. sophisticated person. When I first moved to New York in 1978 to go to NYU, Ellis and I went out on a date. We went to see John Sayles' movie, well, very early John Sayles' movie. What was so it? Caucus 7, 5. Oh, okay, right. Okay. <laughs> And could you who could forget? Lori, while I, while yeah. I screw in the red light bulb while you tell this story. No, no, it's not. But I had I had a big crush on Ellis because he wrote for The New Yorker and because of his personal charm. I and have so, no idea. So we went on on this one date and then we didn't talk again for 35 years. Right. But anyway, I knew that I couldn't marry him. His All of our parents, I think, wanted us to get married because they're so close. But then my name would be Laurie Weiner Wiener. That's that true. could not happen. But I also want to say that you are such a natural parodist. It's almost the way your brain works is amazing. One time I needed a very short bio of myself for an essay that was being published in a book that, that Ellis's wife, Barbara Davelman, was the editor of. And I didn't want to do a serious bio. I wanted a funny bio, and I tried to do a funny one, and it really wasn't very funny. And then Ellis, in three seconds, wrote, it was a parody of a Playboy, sorry, a Playbill bio, listing all these ridiculous-sounding Broadway musicals I had been in, and it was perfect, and he did it in like three seconds. So, Isn't I, she fantastic, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? Laurie Weiner, very impressive. Okay, I love. just felt I should Thank tell you. my personal story Thank of you. Ellis. Very, very now, smart. let's go back to the actual history, okay. the comedy <laughs> writing. So, so after Lampoon uh, kind of went into the twilight, although they kept publishing, rather, right. Spy Magazine appeared in the 4th of July that was the 80s of New York. It dawned on me, no one ever said this, my, my editor was Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter founded the magazine. Kurt is now sort of a freelance, bon vivant, raconteur man about town, and Graydon has been editor of Vanity Fair for a thousand years. Of course. Years. It dawned on me that I was getting away with murder at Spy, because one of Spy's main claims to fame was that it was all nonfiction. I was given a column called How to Be a Grown-Up, which was completely fixed. It was, it was, you know, the musings of some idiot in Pennsylvania. And it went on for like three years, I think, some, something like that. Ellis, to situate Spy for our, our readers who are not our age, 
Talk about it for a moment in the context of 80s New York and what its role was and why people read it. Spy, I always thought that that, that Spy's unofficial theme was that all celebrities live on the same planet. Henry Kissinger is equal to Mick Jagger, is equal to Macaulay Culkin, and because they're all famous for whatever good or bad reason. And Spy took great glee in making fun of them, revealing their idiocies, its slogan was smart, funny, fearless. And it's true. They, they were smart, funny, and fearless. Spy would do these things like a sitcom-o-matic, where it would give you columns that you could just pick one from column A, a character, a situation, a city, and a theme song, and create your own sitcom. And Vanity Fair does something very similar to that to this day. So that's great. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it was too smart to, be, to, to ultimately prevail. Well, but it, did, it was unique. It did have a, a you know a fairly good life. It ran for over ten years. I remember reading every single issue ever put out. Yeah. And the two things that I loved about it were their little monikers for people that they would come up with that would stick to these people to the end of their days. So for Donald Trump, it was the short-fingered vulgarian Donald Trump, and, and also it, the Queens-born casino operator. And, and uh, his name would never be mentioned without one of those adjectives attached to it. Also, their media coverage and analysis was amazing. I think that the new spy magazine is probably Gawker. I would say that's, oh, the, that's closest, the yeah. closest thing we have to it. It's not nearly as great, and it doesn't have you know, the breadth. It lacks the cleverness. Gawker is more about drawing blood, like messy right, blood, right, right. big gaping wounds, <laughs> yeah, but, whereas Spy it, it, was but much more... But that's how the, Spy was perceived in its day. I mean, you... Well, I, only because they were the only ones doing it. Now, because of the internet, so many people are trafficking in that kind of thing. But Spy was much more, I think, the school of Evelyn Waugh, whereas Gawker is much more the school of uh, Saw and Hostel, <laughs> actually, in terms of how they do humor. <laughs> yeah, would, well you, would you agree? Yeah, I do. They had a column about Hollywood by Celia Brady, and it was a big secret as to who he or she was. And for those of our listeners who don't know, Celia Brady is a reference to... A character in F. Scott Fitzgerald. There we go. Yeah. The last tycoon. My editor at Spy was Joanne Gruber. And when it was no longer being published, I said to Joanne, all right, now, seriously, who was Celia? And she wouldn't tell me. Really? We don't know to this no. day? Well, I mean, she knows. I don't know. Yeah. I always wondered about the friendship of Graydon Carter and um, and Kurt and Kurt because their careers went on such divergent paths. Not it was only like that, Al Franken and Tom Davis. And Tom Davis. I can never remember the one of the lesser known. Well, yeah. yeah, but I mean that happens. When you think of those guys, at least they're. I don't know either of them personally. I should say, but their presences in the media. Neither of them seem particularly funny guys. Actually, neither seem like guys you would associate. Not guys lacking a sense of humor, but not what I think of as, as well, funny guys. And yet, here came this humor magazine. I didn't know about it in person, but I think Kurt wrote the monthly editorials, which were great. So I disagree. Push halfway. back, push yeah. back. Tell yeah. me I'm wrong. The editorials I loved every month. Another interesting thing culturally is that Graydon Carter has gone from excoriating celebrity exactly. to oh, yeah. exalting that, celebrity. That is, and I'm hardly that the is first a very interesting person to point that out. But he's yeah. done it from one, one extreme to another extreme, actually, yeah. and Agreed. done quite well at both, both, both actually. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, he has nice hair. He's too nice. Yeah, suspiciously, suspiciously nice. nice. He, he's working yeah, on that, that can be his moniker. <laughs> suspiciously suspiciously nice. well-coiffed Graydon Carter. Yeah. <laughs> working on that Leon Wieseltier 
Quaff. Is that what Leon looks if like? Leon Bazeltier had a had a better barber, the, I think. Yeah. I think has so. he's still alive? Oh no, had I said. Oh. They, well, yeah, <laughs> oh. he's still alive. Okay. Don't get confused. His barber, we don't know. He's quite alive. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Who was the first great American humorist? Was there anyone before Mark Twain? Is actually is what I'm asking. Jonathan Edwards was hilarious. <laughs> That's right. When he was if on. You were, anyway. If you were Jewish, yeah. That's <laughs> right. I do not know. Yeah. That's actually a really good question, because if you think of the authors who were prominent then, if you think of, say, Cooper or Irving, not a funny bone in their bodies. Yeah, yeah, right. really. Really. Well, it didn't seem like a funny time. No. And then you go back to the Puritans, and they were hilarious. Oh, hilarious. So, in their way. Uh, Mark Twain really invented the, the form. It all and springs from And he was so him. good well, at his, it. But, uh, but he's readable today, whereas Bret Hart is not. Mm-hmm. Twain says, uh, for a piece of humor to last... It has to be that, and by last, I mean last for 30 years. And I thought that's probably more right than not. You're three years, let alone 30. Comedy is particularly evanescent because yes. I always think about Lenny Bruce, who except is, uh, for in Shakespeare and Mark Twain. Well, but Shakespeare, do you really laugh at Shakespeare? I do absolutely. The well, comedies are a, hilarious. A good, a good production, yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream, will make you laugh. Twelfth Night, when unbelievable. The, when, and when the Rude Mechanicals come on and yeah. Bottom and those guys, that's, yeah. those, Midsummer Night's Dream you know, and Twelfth Night. You two are so pretentious. Well, you're we just, are. You're just are. learning this? <laughs> yeah, I'm new <laughs> here. I am just our, learning this. Our guest is Ellis Weiner. I mean, the thing about, let, let me pontificate for a second, and then I'll c- go on to pontificate for a minute, <laughs> that uh, humor is the ultimate pass-fail, I think. It's like a magic trick. Either it works or it doesn't. An even better analogy is that humor is digital and drama is analog. Drama has a lot of space within it to elicit a reaction that needn't be full-out sobbing and still make you feel like you've had an experience. Whereas with humor, the more you don't laugh, the more ill-used you feel or the more irritated you feel. And nobody likes that. That's one, I think, reason that accounts for its short shelf life its, and its, its cultural limitations. Now, why is that true? It's true that the ultimate fact of human existence is mortality and that the fact that everyone's going to die is the basis for tragedy but it's also true, I mean, I've never read The Denial of Death, but, but we know what it, its thesis is. It's also true that we know that and we don't care. So we know that we get out of bed every day not caring about that, and maybe that's the similar metaphysical basis for humor. So why isn't that more universal? Well, what's interesting, though, pushing back on that is some of the cornerstones of Western literature that have survived hundreds of years are very funny. Chaucer is very funny. That's true. There are are scenes in Dickens that are absolutely hilarious. Dickens is hilarious, but going back way before, you know, Don Quixote is hilariously funny in parts. Boccaccio in Renaissance Italy, very, very funny. And to push back on another thing that you said about about past... And and Alice, we don't validate your parking. (laughs) I'm out of here. Forget it. No, about the pass-fail thing. I was thinking about Stephen Colbert doing his bit at the press dinner in front of George Bush, and everyone in the room thought that it was the least funny thing that had ever happened because they in the were world. being mocked yes but then those of us watching it on video thought it was the greatest yeah. thing ever yeah. yeah it's past fail in the context of extreme subjectivity mm-hmm. and yeah. that's maybe the third you know determining factor and it's also true to push back on myself so we can all continue in unison to beat me up that that there's such thing as a comic tone which even if it doesn't make you laugh you appreciate some i read once someone said that ulysses is written in in this comic spirit. And I thought, you know, that's true. I don't remember laughing at it, but I get that. It takes 
We're talking with Ellis Sweener, who is good enough to come in and substitute for uh, the Professor Tom Lutz today. But with all the family and all your cousins. Ellis, I want to throw a broad question about the comic novel to you. I want to see where you'll take this. In England, I would posit there's a great tradition of comic novelists, comic novels. They're accorded great respect there. I'm thinking right now of Howard Jacobson, a wonderful British novelist, not much known here, who won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago, a very big prize for a novel called The Finkler Question. And then you've got, going back, Kingsley Amos, Evelyn Waugh. There's nothing like that in America. There is no real tradition of the American comic novel that is taken seriously in the Academy in any way. Why is that? That's a very good question. Maybe because what they have there that we don't have here here is a strong, if not calcified, class structure. And a lot of that humor involves breaching those boundaries, class to class. I was waiting for you to mention P.G. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. in which we see the privileged class, you know, Bertie and uh, Jeeves, Bertie acting like an idiot, surrounded by equally upper-class characters, some of whom are idiots and some are not. Here, Danny Abelson, my, my lampoon partner, took a course in film history at Penn with a guy named Bob Rosen, who maybe you know. We, we do know Bob Rosen. And he said that once Bob Rosen said, every American movie is about upward mobility. And I thought, you know, that's more true than not. That's a great thought. Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. What you do get is some respect for genre humor, like the funny crime novel, like, uh, what's his name? Well, Elmore Leonard, for example, you know, mm-hmm. ki- kills right. a lot of people. He's hilarious. He's not really thought of as a comic novelist. It's He's amusing, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote a couple comic detective novels. So I read some, and I read Janet Ivanovich, and I couldn't get past page 50. I thought, this is, oh, she's supposed to be funny, and I, I just didn't care for it. Uh, who am I reading now? Um, Carl Hyacinth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read like five of his in one sweep a few years ago when I first discovered him and thought he was great. Then I thought, ah, it's all the same thing. And, and, and I gave up for a few years. Now I'm reading another one. And I like it. Mm-hmm. As Doug Kenny once said to me, that this is the only name dropping I'll do, when I gave him something to read, I said, what'd you think? He said, well, it didn't make me go ha ha. <laughs> so indeed, I'm reading, you know, Carl Hyacinth. It's not making me go ha ha, but I'm happy to be reading it. You know, I mentioned to you guys Charles Portis. Mm-hmm. I would call him a comic novelist. I'm sure half the people listening don't know who he is. He wrote True Grit, mm-hmm. which which everyone knows, but that's not his funniest book. Dog of the South. Dog of the South and Masters of Atlantis, I think. One of my favorite books is J.R. by William Gaddis. I've only read it once. I read it when it came out in 74, and it was really funny. It's also really difficult and smart and challenging, so that's a great accomplishment to me. When I think of, you know, what's a great American comic novel, a really obscure one comes to mind. Um, My Search for Warren Harding by Robert Robert Plunkett Plunkett in 1983. It's called My Search for Warren Harding. It's by Robert Plunkett. He also wrote another very funny novel called Love Junkie. But anyway, he is so obscure. He's living in Sarasota, Florida. We just... LA Review of Books just did an interview with him. Fantastic. I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I think that the little gem of the comic novel is just not appreciated in this country the way it is in Britain. I think where we're stronger, I think our best comedy is on TV, our, our most celebrated best comedy. Oh, for comedy. sure. Well, now. I mean, it's been in the movies until very recently, yeah. really. When I think about American comedy, I think about Broad City. I don't think about a novel. Speaking of TV, when I was at Lampoon, Saturday Night Live began, and Michael Donahue had gone from the magazine over to Saturday Night. A lot of the cast came from Lemmings, which was the Lampoon uh, musical. And I learned that the guys that I was working with who had already been there were sort of envious, and who could blame them? So 
I, I came in one day sort of enthusiastic about Saturday Night Live and learned, don't say anything. Oh, you know, wow. don't, don't talk about the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't blame them, but that Saturday Night Live you know, still exists. It was the precursor of a lot of great TV comedy and sketch humor That's true. leading to other sitcoms and other uh, you know, uh, uh, improv groups in New York and L.A. and all over the country. Well, in a funny way, TV remains aspirational because most of the fancy writers in Brooklyn have development deals at HBO. And less and less can you make a living writing funny print in any form. No, absolutely. Yeah. And you can make a pretty good living if you write for a TV show. Ellis, you write for The New Yorker now, right? When I'm lucky, yeah. And I think people listening might be interested in hearing how that came about initially and what your relationship is with your editor there. How does one write humor for The New Yorker? It, it did change. I, in 1979... There was a strike at the New York Times. So a bunch of Lampoon and other writers, I mean like 30 different writers, were all drawn together to do a parody of the New York Times called Not the New York Times. And I was called and I did the TV review, their TV section. So there was a big party at George Plimpton's house and I met a woman named Veronica Gang. I knew she was at the New York and she said, you should submit stuff. So I thought, fine. So I did. And that was the time William Sean was still editor. And Veronica was a, a great editor. She would say, well, this doesn't work and change this. Or the second piece I sold to her, I loved the futurists, the Italian futurists and their manifestos, their insane, raging manifestos. So I wrote one about blue jeans. And she said, do this, but about a different subject. So I wrote about the MX missile, which most listeners probably don't know. The MX missile was this ridiculous Pentagon boondoggle, which never got made, thank God, in which to protect our nuclear missile system, it was proposed that the Pentagon put missiles on a bunch of railroad cars in this vast network of railroad tracks throughout Arizona and Wyoming and constantly keep them on the move so the enemy would never know where they are. The MX was mobile experimental. So I wrote this futurist manifesto about how great the MX missile was and how normal missiles cowering in their silos were beneath contempt. And that was thanks to Veronica's idea. So I would submit stuff to her and she would fight for them. And Sean would say, oh, all right. (laughs) And eventually she left and my editor then became Dan Menneker. And I sold one thing to him. It was inspired by a news item that said in, in the city of Shenzhen, China, they were developing it for tourism. So I wrote this in Chinese communist propaganda language, this brochure for the Shenzhen resort. <laughs> and I got back what we then called the galleys, mm-hmm. the blues, and William Sean himself had suggested a joke. Wow. <laughs> was it any good? It wasn't, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> did, you, did you include it? Playing. No, we didn't include <laughs> it. And Dan agreed. And then eventually Spy Magazine went away. So Susan Morrison, who had been one of the main editors at Spy, took over the Shouts and Murmurs section at the New Yorker, and she became my editor. And I have a nice enough relationship with her, but it's, it's pretty remote. You know, I've, I've sold her things too, and it's always great. The, the, the week a, a piece appears in the New Yorker, it's like a week of your birthday. Every day something could happen, and you're special, and it's great. And they pay, which, believe me, I used to, in the 80s, I wrote for literally more magazines than I could count, for, than I could remember, which no longer exists. Mademoiselle doesn't exist. I used to write for Parenting and Child. I think they still exist. Air and Space, Smithsonian. Smithsonian still exists. And, and they were all, these were all not regular gigs. I would, I would pitch stuff to them and get a yes or a no. Any of those that still exist, I'm sure, I haven't even tried, don't buy humor articles. I can't afford it anymore. 
And that's our show for this week. You have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I'd like to thank our producer, Jerry Gorin, the generous support of the Gold Hirsch Foundation, for my co-host, Lori Weiner, our guest, Ellis Weiner. I'm Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. We will see you next week. Dale suave, mami.